0: Unquestionably, there is such a thing not only as being too old to fight, but too fat. That disqualification is the more serious if the fat is above the collar. Lieutenant General Hunter Liggett, First Army, AEF, Commanding. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 89, Liggett Takes Command. Let's start off with some admin notes. PayPal shout out to Ryan. Thank you so much for your kind gift, sir. It is greatly appreciated. PayPal is a great way to donate to the podcast if you're interested in giving without committing to something like Patreon. Donations through PayPal and Patreon go to maintaining the servers and the website, and then towards research materials so we can make more content. Just type in the podcast email address, verdunpodcast at gmail.com, to help support the show. Patreon shout out to Michael and Mike, two different gentlemen, and Warren. Thank you so much. As patrons on Patreon, you will be helping to financially support the podcast. As thanks, you will have early access to all new episodes, as well as transcripts and bibliographies for those episodes. Patrons also have other perks, such as extra episodes that have not yet been released. If this sounds interesting to you, check us out on patreon.com backslash Battles of the First World War podcast. Patronage of the BFWWP can begin with as little as a dollar per episode, and it is greatly appreciated. Patrons are only charged when a new episode is released. Hey, do you happen to like the sound of my voice? Or, perhaps you really like Rob Laplander's writing style? Well, you're in luck, because these two things have come together to create the audio version of Rob's book, Finding the Lost Battalion, Beyond the Rumors, Myths, and Legends of America's Famous World War I Epic. The book is the definitive account of the American World War I Epic of Lieutenant Colonel Charles Whittlesey and the 700 men surrounded with him in the Charlevoix Ravine for those fateful days in October 1918, it's broken up by chapters in podcast format, and you will have almost 36 hours of listening time ahead of you. The audiobook can be gifted as well, and you can even set the delivery date. So if a special someone's birthday is coming up, you can have it delivered on their day. I mean, let's not forget Valentine's Day either. Get that special someone, the defining story of America's experience in World War I. Alright, let's get to AEF 1st Army Headquarters in Sweely Village, south of the Murzargon argonne Front. As we have discussed in previous episodes, AEF Commander-in-Chief General John J. Pershing passed command of the 1st Army to then 1st Corps Commander Lieutenant General Hunter Liggett. For Pershing to give up command was a hard thing to do, as he was a commander given to micromanaging everything under him. For someone to be found worthy of succeeding blackjack, that someone had to be an outstanding individual. Hunter Liggett was 61 in October of 1918. He was a big guy, described as stout in his army physicals, as he stood at over six feet and weighed over 200 pounds. I'm not sure about y'all, but I'm personally 5'10 and weigh a good mm, 200 hundo my own self so this just sounds downright mean and too harsh for my own tastes. I mean, come on, man, give a brother a break, yeah? Anyway, it was Liggett's age and appearance that almost got him relieved and sent back to the U.S. Pershing wanted young, fit, and aggressive commanders who would ask how high when he ordered them to jump but Liggett survived and was eventually promoted, precisely because of his opening quote: "What fat he had did not extend above his collar." Hunter Liggett was born in Reading, Pennsylvania, on the 21st of March, 1857. His mother named him Hunter after her own family name, and she tragically died from childbirth complications just three weeks after he was born. Young Hunter grew up with his father, his stepmother, and besides losing his mother before he ever knew her, he had a normal childhood for the times. At 18, Liggett aced the West Point Entry Exam and entered the world where many U.S. Army officers of the AEF would be molded. West Point was an environment where, quote, its system of competitive ranking forced cadets to fight for rank, which carried forward into their later careers, where ambition often trumped collegiality and led to much jealousy and ill will as certain officers advanced more quickly than others, end quote. The young cadet Liggett seemed to have mainly stayed above the fray, although in his later career he would certainly demonstrate political savvy, like many other officers around him. He graduated a second lieutenant in 1879 and followed a fairly typical army career for the time. He was first posted as an infantry lieutenant to outposts in Montana and Texas, where he and his soldiers chased the last remaining Native Americans not yet forced onto reservations. He volunteered but was too late to see action in the Spanish-American War, although he would see a good part of his career in the post-war governing of the islands of Cuba and the Philippines. Liggett saw brief duty in Cuba, but he served much longer tours of duty. In the Philippines, on Mindanao Island, Liggett was the governor of Davao province. There, as an official of the U.S. military and U.S. government, he followed what was essentially a campaign to benevolently assimilate the Filipino people into the Eurocentric civilized world. It was really a counterinsurgency strategy against Moro insurgents. Liggett oversaw the creation of infrastructure in the province, cutting roads through the land and building schools and other public buildings. At the same time, he kept his soldiers ready for any military action that might be necessary against the Muslim Moros. As Robert Bullard would say of his own tours of duty in the Philippines, it was, quote, four-fifths peace and one-fifth war-making, end quote. In these decades of service, Liggett rose to the ranks slowly, and he alternated between line units and staff positions as the army dictated. What would help to set him apart from his fellow officers was that he was an avid reader of military history, and he sought self-improvement in his career by building up all the knowledge he could. At West Point, he had picked up a lifelong love of maps and a habit of reading for his own edification. The words of Major General John Pope, the speaker at his graduation all those years before, had always stayed with him. Quote, Be mindful, too, that in leaving this institution, you have not completed your education, but have only begun it. You have learned here how to learn, and if you fail to avail yourself of that lesson, a large part... Indeed, the whole of your education here will be useless to you. Self-reliance and self-restraint you will be compelled to learn in the army, whether you desire it or not. But no man can stand justified of himself who does not use every means and avail of every opportunity to study his profession. And as far as theory and a limited practice can accomplish it, prepare himself for higher position and greater responsibility. End quote. Liggett would be one of the few to use his every means and opportunity to study his profession, and as a result, his career track changed after 1909. A lieutenant colonel by this time, Liggett was seen by his superiors and his peers as a capable and trustworthy officer, a worker, and a doer. But, quote, Liggett wanted more, and he had come to the realization that a more formal course of study was necessary for him to advance to higher rank and to become a more valuable member of his chosen profession, quote. That year, he was enrolled in the Army War College as a student officer. In 1910, he would be the War College's next director. As director, he oversaw a robust curriculum for officers that saw several staff rides through Civil War battlefields. These were done on horseback, covering hundreds of miles and requiring students to play roles like various field commands and support positions. At the end of each day, a student officer would have to debrief everyone else on a particular part of the studied battle, and he had to do it without notes. Conferences came after each staff ride, no doubt an early progenitor to the after-action report. In March 1912, Liggett was promoted to full colonel, and he immediately entered his name for promotion to brigadier general. This was where he used his connections, and one man with a certain amount of clout named William Howard Taft, generally known as President Taft, got his name on the promotables list in February, 1913. It's good to have friends. South of the border, Mexico was caught in the paroxysms of revolution and Brigadier General Liggett was sent south to take charge of the 4th Brigade 2nd Regular Division, different from the AEF 2nd Division and its 4th Marine Brigade, in April of 1914. While his brigade awaited further orders, Liggett started them on training that was, quote, to be conducted during both night and day that were practical applications of tactical study with an eye toward the current situation in Mexico, end quote. Robert Bullard, also stationed with Liggett at the time, later said this was the, quote, most realistic and useful, end quote, training that he had received We highlight the training here because it showed how Liggett thought. Under his command, both officers and men should know the mission and the tasks ahead. This is a given in most of today's militaries, but back then this was new. If the American soldier is made to understand the object of any special course of work and can see how it can be applied practically in the field, Liggett said, He will take up the work and carry it through enthusiastically. War broke out in Europe in the summer of 1914. While the United States remained neutral, most officers in the American military knew that sooner or later they'd be swept up into it. Of course, history proved them right, and in April of 1917, the U.S. joined the fight on the side of the Allies. Liggett deployed as commander of the 41st Sunset Division. With him was Colonel Malin Craig as his chief of staff. Craig was known for being a good soldier and competent career officer, but he was also described as narrow-minded, petty, and mean-spirited. And even that example of sterling leadership named Major General Charles Summerall said Craig had a sadistic mind for injuring others. Shortly after their arrival in France, the 41st Division was designated as a depot division. It would be broken up and its members sent as replacements to wherever they were needed. Liggett spent some time with the British Army to get to know the lay of the Western Front and how this war worked. Incidentally, some British officers later recommended Liggett be sent home on account of his being too old. He was nearly relieved on account of his age and his big bones, but he survived to receive command of the AEF's First Corps instead. Liggett quickly learned that this war was different. The first thing I determined to my own satisfaction at the front was that a general officer has nothing to learn in the front line, Liggett wrote after the war, and that he should know every inch of his ground and know it well, But in modern war on the scale that it was fought in France, the nearer one gets to the first line, the less one sees. Generals needed a bird's eye view of things now. This war was far, far different from the days of the Spanish-American War and on a much grander scale than the last great conflict the U.S. had taken part in, its own civil war. Major General Hunter Liggett learned as quickly as he could, and the summer of 1918 provided rapid-fire opportunities to do so. During the End Marne Offensive, known better as the Second Battle of the Marne, he put to work what he knew. He did have his artillery focus on defending the second line of resistance against the German attacks, but he ordered that his infantry not be bunched up in the front line where they would be ripe targets for German artillery. While he told Major General Clarence Edwards to not have his 26th Division outrun the day's objectives without new orders at the beginning of the battle, he took in the lessons he received on the battlefield that summer. Liggett would not give the same orders in the Argonne. He was very, very different from his commander, General John J. Pershing. Where Blackjack was always on the prowl, checking on everything and everyone to the point of micromanagement, Liggett knew when it was time to be prowling and when it was time to sit back and wait just a little bit. When his first corps divisions jumped off into the Argonne Forest and Air Valley on September 26, 1918, Liggett spent the first few hours of the attack sitting quietly at a table playing double solitaire. He later said it was to keep his own nervousness in check, but he also knew that in those first few hours, communication with frontline units would be extremely spotty at best. He had no reason to be down his division commander's throats, asking for updates he knew they did not have. General Pershing made the right call when he gave up command of the AEF First Army. Leading a military campaign, and an army spread over thousands of square kilometers was simply impossible. As we said before, good leaders delegate. Now Lieutenant General Hunter Liggett took command, in his style. He began visiting corps and division headquarters to assess the status of the First Army, and he asked questions. The answers he received were alarming. Upon officially taking command on October 16th, Liggett went to work without fuss or fanfare. What he found was an exhausted and depleted field army, hemorrhaging men and running on hardtack and hope. The number and size of problems facing Liggett were of such magnitude that it is a testament to his internal fortitude that he recognized them and sought to tackle them head-on as well as he possibly could. The army's divisions in the Meuse were bled out and worn out. Thousands of American doughboys were being killed and wounded every day in the relentless grind of combat. Thousands more were being scythed down by dysentery and a growing flu epidemic. On top of this, thousands more were simply disappearing from the ranks. More on this in a bit. The problems began all the way back in the United States. And in reality, the AEF was a victim of circumstances. In the spring and summer of 1918, the decision had been made amongst the Allies to get as many American troops as possible into France. Once here, the French could help supply artillery, tanks, squad automatic weapons, and the ammunition to go with it all. What the Allies needed were men, or more brutally, bodies, bodies to throw into the fight and tip the scales in the Allies' favor. The U.S. had already been woefully ill-prepared for the Great War when they joined it in April of 1917. A year and a half later, the American military had grown by nearly 18 times as the young nation harnessed its untapped manpower for the European War. Things were happening but things were chaotic as well. It was the nature of the beast. Training was already insufficient for those officers and men in the military before war was declared, and for those inducted in the first months afterwards. With the accelerated pace of deployments to France in 1918, training in U.S. military camps became ever more rudimentary and rushed. Raw doughboys would reach the front lines in October 1918 having hardly fired a shot from their rifles. Many got to the Meuse never having thrown a grenade or, more ominously, never having put on a protective mask. Officers, especially junior ones like the lieutenants and captains, received some leadership training, but not enough on battlefield tactics. We spoke in the last episode on General Pershing's concept that the AEF would be an offensive army engaging in open warfare with the enemy, using fire and maneuver against the German army to destroy it. American junior officers were not unwilling to lead. As Timothy Nenninger wrote in an article titled Tactical Dysfunction in the AEF, 1917-1918, through 1918, quote, the quantity and quality of manpower from which the army drew its small unit leadership was generally adequate, possibly of even higher quality than was available to it during World War II, end quote. Neniger then quoted an inspector general who labeled American officers as gallant and brave. But lessons like flanking machine gun nests with quote-unquote gangs and keeping artillery within range of its advancing infantry were lessons bought with rivers of blood in the spring and summer of 1918. At this time, the American military machine also didn't put as much responsibility on non-commissioned officers. So squad leaders and platoon sergeants weren't always the professionals they are today. These NCOs often left critical gaps in the leadership chain when an officer went down. Officers faced other issues as well. Due to the rapid and shifting nature of the war, heavy casualties, and Pershing's ever-present threat to relieve commanders who didn't show enough aggression on the battlefield, officers were always on the move. Many were pulled away to attend service schools just as they were settling into their platoons or companies. Bonds of leadership and camaraderie were unable to form due to officers being constantly shuffled around. Losses took a toll, too. As we saw with the Lost Battalion episodes, by the end of the fight in the Charlevoix Ravine, the remnants of the 308th Infantry Regiment were commanded by a captain. John Lewis Barkley, our one-man army from several episodes ago, noticed that officers came and went rapidly. Officers, he wrote, were like passing shadows to us now. It hardly paid to try to get acquainted with them. The army sent its people where they were needed, of course, but one wonders if there could have been a better way. As we saw with 2nd Lieutenant Joe Lawrence, he was selected to be an officer— Having come originally from the 30th Division, he was sent over to the Meuse Front to join the ranks of the 29th Division, a completely different unit that he had zero connections with. Again, needs must, but it was likely that the 30th Division was in need of officers at the time as well. So there were training and leadership issues with the AEF, Supply was another issue. Again, there were extreme circumstances. When the AEF First Army arrived behind the Meuse Front, they did so using three serviceable roads. Ahead of them lay swaths of devastated ground where artillery had churned the villages and fields and hills into a wasteland of reeking death. Then it rained, turning everything into seas of mud. Once the Mirzargon push began, we saw how those pitifully few roads were snarled with terrible traffic. Guns were unable to move forward with their divisions. Wounded men could not be evacuated, and so died in the hundreds, and supplies could not reach the front. Doughboys frequently went hungry in the field. Struggling leadership... Poor training and poor supplies were already enough to prepare a new doughboy for failure. But now send him into the swirling chaos of combat in the fog-enshrouded hills and valleys of the Meuse with artillery shells and German bullets screaming toward him from what seemed like every direction. Many and most stayed with their units and pushed forward against the enemy. Others became lost in the fog and chaos, Despite their best intentions. Private Milton Swenningson of the 138th Infantry Regiment, 35th Division wrote I guess the officers knew the plan, but privates were given no such information. Swenningson was separated from his unit, and it caused him no small amount of fear. What to do, he recalled. It did not make sense to me to start attacking alone. This was not a one-man war. I knew that there were no soldiers anywhere I could see, so I guess I started for the rear. Somewhere that morning there had been a rumor that we were about to be relieved. That may have influenced me to head back. Others simply became stragglers. Some deserted their posts out of fear while others, quite honestly, went in search of food for themselves and their buddies. On October 9th, over 100 doughboys from the 78th Division showed up in the 82nd Division's rear areas. These men admitted that they had left their areas without leave to do so, but they added that their officers had made no moves to procure more food for them. Many of the men said they had last eaten on the 7th, two days prior and others said it had been even longer than that for them. An oft-quoted statement from Lieutenant General Liggett is that there were some 100,000 stragglers behind the lines of the Merz-Argonne Front. And we'll go ahead and use that quote here too. With 1.2 million American soldiers eventually taking part in the 47-day battle, 100,000 stragglers meant that nearly 10% of the AEF was always AWOL and unaccounted for. It was a problem the AEF would never master, but Liggett would do his best to tamp it down. One tool to deal with stragglers was the hobo barrage. Cavalry units unable to be used for the breakthrough that never materialized were put to work policing rear areas for skulkers and shirkers. Hundreds of wayward doughboys were caught up in the dragnet. MPs also policed battle lines as close as 300 meters from the forward edge of the battle area to make sure doughboys kept moving towards the enemy. Men caught away from their units were usually put back in the line, generally with little consequences from officers who hardly knew them to begin with. Liggett was charged with leading the First Army and preparing it for the next attack it would make. This straggling issue was another symptom of poor training and poor supply chains. He went to work to fix them both. General Pershing was informed by Liggett that he would need two weeks to prepare for the next attack. The original date set for the next attack was 28th October, but communication with French command and the French 4th Army in Champagne pushed that back to a mutually agreed date of November 2nd. Liggett set about rebuilding the 1st Army. Local operations continued on the front lines, and of course, we will visit those actions. But the focus changed towards retraining the doughboys, refitting them with new equipment, refueling them with food and resting them. Pershing had practically run the AEF into the ground in the three previous weeks. The Germans needed to be attacked constantly and the lines had ground forward, but it had come at an extremely heavy cost. Pershing was unable to keep from coming around to First Army HQ and, you know, what's going on, HL? He just couldn't let things go. This was where the micromanaging came up against the more stolid disposition of the new Army commander. Liggett brushed it aside gently at first by saying, Give First Army a directive and I will do all that is humanly possible to carry it out. Pershing didn't get the message, and he continued coming around and getting into the details of Liggett's daily planning. The new First Army commander tolerated it until he hit his limit, and then he had to firmly tell Blackjack to back off. Go away and forget it, Liggett told Pershing. Blackjack did indeed back off after that. It wasn't like Hunter Liggett was sitting around. There was no double solitaire happening this time. Michael Shea, author of Hunter Liggett, A Soldier's General, wrote it best. While his divisions rested and were refit, Liggett's mind was not idle. He had now reached the pinnacle of his career— Something he had prepared for virtually his entire adult life. For one thing, Liggett had become convinced that many casualties had resulted from a lack of effective artillery support. It was not that the American artillery units performed poorly, rather, it was the failure of most division commanders to coordinate infantry and artillery. He agreed with savvy commanders like Major Generals Charles Summerall and John A. Lejeune, who made sure that their artillery was within effective range, even if it meant briefly halting an attack. In addition, Liggett felt that more artillery should be made available to commanders instead of sitting idle in Corps Reserve. Finally, he authorized air support on enemy targets during an infantry attack, not just on rear areas, as in the past. He kept all of that in mind as he planned the next objectives, and he issued orders accordingly. Liggett continued to learn and to adapt, End quote. First Army was planning something really big, and we'll get to it soon. In the meantime, we've got to set the stage just a little bit more. Questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com. Get at me on Twitter at at WW1podcast. Check out the BFWWP website, firstworldwarpodcast.com, for some photos. And check out the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you again soon. Take care.